Welcome to Aging Faithfully. I'm Claudia Griggs, Clergy Associate for Christian Formation. For those of us age 60 and older, retirement from actively following Jesus is not an option. We still have more learning and growing to do as his disciples. We also have a responsibility to share with those younger than us what we've learned about living a faithful life and to serve our community using the skills we've acquired professionally and personally over the previous decades. In our three-part podcast series, each of our speakers brings deep experience and knowledge to help us rediscover our value before God and His purposes for us at this stage in our lives. I invite you to listen to the Right Reverend Terrell Glenn, whose passion is to connect people in every season of their lives to the presence and power of Jesus Christ. Terrell is a North Carolina area bishop for the Diocese of the Carolinas, and his talk addresses the biblical mandate to continue to mature as disciples of Jesus, regardless of our age or abilities. Well, good morning. It is indeed a, a privilege to be here with you. I was I was very blessed when Claudia called me and asked me to come and spend time with you. Um, and so I want to thank you. And I also want to tell you how how amazing it is to see this room full as it is. Um, it's good to be with you, and it is good that you are here. Uh, when it comes to aging, uh, it's been my experience in churches I've served as rector, it, whether it was St. Andrews in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, All Saints, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, and especially at Pauley's Island where we had a large number of retirees, that whenever we would try to get a ministry started for those who are over 60, 65, 70, whatever we were trying to have as the target group, we would be very lucky to have five, maybe ten. And so this is extraordinary. What I need to also say is it's, I think, usually those smaller groups because talking about aging is something that people typically don't want to do. We avoid it like a plague. We're like Francis Bacon, the 16th century English philosopher who once said, I will never be an old man. To me, old age is always 15 years older than I am. <laughs> well, I think we can certainly understand what he means. And I also need to give a disclaimer. First, I really look forward to hearing Julia and Janet and what God's given them to share. I need, as a disclaimer, to say this, that on this subject of, of aging, I am not an expert. I'm more of a daily practitioner. <laughs> it's just going one day at a time, stepping into it one step further every time. But what I do hope that we can do is look at this idea of aging faithfully as disciples of Jesus, and in partic particular, responding to a call, embracing a promise, and receiving a vision. Let me pray. Lord, as we just give our attention to you. We ask that you would speak to us. And especially as we open your scriptures, let us know that word to be a living word. Transform us, remake us, encourage us, 
And grant that my, my words would be used by you for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I don't know if you've thought of it, but so many of our ideas and expectations, our perspectives that we form on aging, typically comes from our culture or from observations we've made in seeing other people age. And as a result, for many of us, aging is, is viewed with few exceptions negatively. Not something to be looked forward to, not something to embrace, but actually something to try to avoid. Many face the idea with a sense of dread. I'm getting older. I even see it creeping in when another birthday comes and I simply say to Teresa who wants to do something and bring people together, I'm like, don't do anything. It's just going to be another day. The fact is, we do face aging, many of us, with a sense of dread uh, uh, because of what the experience is. We can't escape the reality that the experience of aging involves the experience of loss and limitation that, as far as we're concerned, really couldn't have any real merit to it, much less any redemptive possibilities. So we avoid it. We, we seek to delay it. There's a young man named Jason Thacker. He's the director of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And he had written a piece. His expertise is really in, in technology. But he looks at technology and how it is used to actually minimize the value of those who age. He writes this. Generation after generation has sought to overcome aging with elixirs and medicine, even by chasing the fountain of youth. In contemporary times, we chase this elusive fountain of youth as we clamor to develop anti-aging solutions and to transcend with technology humanity's natural limits. Tech titans like Larry Ellison, Peter Thiel, and Elon Musk as well as prominent futurists like Yuval Noah Harari, are fascinated with these types of life-extending technologies, which in many ways perpetuate the transhumanist goals of upgrading humanity. Utopian dreams of overcoming aging and death have captured the attention of many people who believe old age is actually something to be avoided at all costs, rather than humbly addressed. The fact is that we either look at aging as something that we have to eradicate by, by just seeing how we can stay younger, or we face aging as saying that as we look at our culture, as people age, their capacity to contribute to the culture diminishes, and the cost of keeping them alive increases. Therefore, as medical ethicist Ezekiel Emanuel said, we probably ought to all look to die when we're 75. In fact, he famously wrote of that, saying because you're, after 75, more of a drain on society's resources, that he famously promised to refuse all heroic medical interventions, vaccinations, and antibiotics after he hits 75. You think his kids have an opinion? <laughs> the fact is, though, 
If we live this life as if this life is all there is, we'll naturally seek to extend it as long as possible. And if we live as if the value of human life is determined by contributions of strength, then we'll seek to end it when the perceived worth of others is gone. But if we let Scripture guide our lives, we see, though, that old age is not something to be avoided. It's something to be embraced. For to live is Christ, Paul writes, and to die is gain. So what is the biblical picture here for us? What's this? How do we age faithfully as disciples of Jesus? Now, first, if we're going to address that topic, we've got to define one of those words, disciple. Why not how why don't, why don't we say what is the biblical picture for us and how do we age faithfully as Christians? Well, I've just got a prejudice you need to know. The word Christian is found in the Bible three times. The word disciples found in the New Testament alone 281 times. We were given the great commission to go make disciples. So what is that? What's the biblical picture of a disciple? Well, the word literally means learner. And here's my sense of what a disciple is, according to the biblical testimony. A lifelong follower of Christ, a lifelong learner of Christ, and a lifelong imitator of Christ. Now, those three categories of follower, learner, and imitator are very important. But actually, what I'd like for you to focus on is the first word in each of those phrases, lifelong. In other words, not first half of life learner or first half of life follower or in my productive years, an imitator or while I was still in the professional world, a learner. It's not something that we work on early in our lives so that we can plateau and coast. The vision that Jesus gives us that we see in the scriptures is going from strength to strength. And if our bodies can't do it, he intends us to do it in the inner person, in the recreation that he's made in us, going from strength to strength. So I'd love to just put this in a biblical context. If you have a Bible, great. If not, trust me um, as I read this. It's in the Bible. And so God said, give all your money to John. Ye no, that's, that's, not, that's, that's not that passage. I'm looking for a different passage. No, I want to just hold up really one verse that we'll hang some thoughts on this morning. And it's found in Mark chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17, we'll focus on verse, verse 17. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And here's the verse I want us to get. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Hear it again. Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. So what I want us to hear are three distinct things here that have direct effect on what it means to age faithfully as a disciple. There's a call, there's a promise, and there's a vision. First, there's a call. Follow me. When Jesus says, follow me, 
he had a tremendous task for the disciples. He was going to put before them the idea of going from being mere fishermen to be fishers of men. But notice that while there's a task to be accomplished, accomplished, there's a person to engage. Jesus says, come, follow me. And here's the point. Before Jesus ever calls us to any task, he always first calls us to himself. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He calls us to himself and into the community with him of all who he would draw to himself. In other words, Jesus calls us first and foremost into relationship with him, to do life with him, to know his love, his goodness, his mercy, his beauty, his truth, his righteousness, mercy, and justice, his creativity, his wisdom, his generosity, his power, his compassion, his gentleness. I don't need to go on to it. That to come and encounter Jesus, coming into relationship with him, means all those and more. But before he ever sets us to a task, even aging, he calls us to himself. He puts himself before them and invites his disciples into a relationship with him. Have you ever thought about this, that responding to Jesus and his call faithfully is an identity-changing event? Let me read how Paul puts it, puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Excuse me, yeah, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You kind of got to stop there and say, why you got to sugarcoat it, Paul? I mean... <laughs> And he makes his case, this is who you were. But then that great pivot in verse 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear the identity change? We went from being dead people walking to being people who have the life of God in us now. We have been given the person of Christ to indwell us in the power of the Spirit. Everything has changed. But most specifically, our identity. We have gone from death to life when we respond to the call of Christ and give our lives to him. Now, I know as we age, we, we all have different experiences, but we also have many 
many similar experiences. I think one of the greatest challenges of aging presents that it presents is the seeming unending experience of loss, of change. Loss of what? Well, loss of vitality, loss of a career, loss of some family members, loss of mobility, loss of friends, loss of memory, loss of vigor, loss of independence, loss of good health. Some of it is loss all at once, and some of it is loss on the installment plan. But it's loss nonetheless. And depending upon where you actually have aligned your life to get it, even loss of our sense of identity, of who we are. I remember when I was rector of Saint, excuse me, of All Saints, um, Pauly's Island, a community where a lot of retired people come to live. It was a Friday morning Bible study. We'd finished the Bible study. We then went into small groups. The small groups took place, and I noticed this one gentleman at the table where I was sitting. He just was especially despondent didn't participate much in the discussions. And so as everybody left, I just stayed at the table to talk to him a little bit. I could tell that he was depressed. I said, what, what's really bothering you? And this is what he said. Does anybody here know who I used to be? I was a young clergyman, was invited by a member of our church in, in Mount Pleasant, St. Andrews, to go on a retreat, a men's retreat at Laity Lodge in, in the canyons of Texas. We had the first speaker speak, and then we were sent to small groups. So we went to the small groups, and the point of that small group discussion was just to get to know each other. But we were given some rules as to how to do it. He said, yeah, get to know each other and go around the room and tell about yourself, but here's one thing. You may not say anything about what you do. Yeah, it got real quiet. I've got to be honest. I panicked. I was, I was undone as I walked from my seat in the big plenary session down to the room assigned for us. I was, I was stymied trying to think, what in the world am I going to say? I can tell them my name. I thought of a couple of other things, but I realized I really couldn't say anything that I thought was significant apart from telling people what I did for a living. I didn't know what to say. And the fact is, if, if we identify ourselves, even as we sit here, with anything that we can or we will lose, what favor have we done to ourselves? Jesus calls us to himself, to identify with him, to identify with knowing him, being filled with him following him, learning of him, and imitating him as his disciples. Stuart Briscoe, a pastor, he's home with the Lord now, but he was the senior pastor of Elmbrook Church. Um, and he wrote 60 books. One of them was called Everyday Disciples for Ordinary People. And in it, he gives this illustration of a group of people coming to a, a 
new attenders class, and they all were seated in a circle. And he had simply said, hey, would you just go around the circle and introduce yourself? He started, and he got the circle going around to his right. There was a girl over to the left that he had noticed once before having come to service, and he couldn't wait till it got to her because he wanted to know something about her. He couldn't understand why she was coming. She didn't look like anybody else there. So everybody went around and said their names and what they did for a living and, and, and all that until it got to this girl. And when it was her turn, in response to the question, can, they, can you tell us who you are? Here's what she said. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, carefully disguised as a machine operator. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. When we find our identity in Christ, you can never lose Christ. He'll never be taken away from you. When we find our identity in his church, of his church, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It can't get taken away from you being in the body of Jesus. When we identify ourselves with the word of God, again, of that, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Aging faithfully begins here with our identity in Christ. Someone for all the changes and losses who will never be taken away from us. In fact, we'll only grow closer and in a stronger relationship. But let me just take a little bit of a rabbit trail. Because while that is true, that that decision really needs to be the first decision of discipleship. Follow me. And our identity where we realize, yes, I do have a career. Yes, I do have this family. Yes, I do enjoy this health. But we're naming things that will eventually be gone. That we want to put our identity in the one who never leaves. And what we are given for eternity. But what about the losses? What about the changes? Whether it's a lifestyle, people, health, there is just so much change, and it is all at once and incremental and all both at the same time. I know this about change. We tend to experience change as loss, and you grieve loss. That's why so often in the aging experience, we can be hit by, by waves of the blues, waves of depression, feelings that we really maybe have never felt before. And wonder, why am I feeling this? Because change is loss. And we do experience change, loss. We, we grieve loss, rather. So what do we do? How do we, as those who identify in Christ, this is who I am. I am a follower of Jesus. Still, how do we deal with the, with the loss? Again, we turn to the scriptures. We've got an extraordinary picture. You remember in John 14, Jesus is, is approaching the cross, but that extraordinary time in John 14, when he's talking to the disciples about 
not being troubled. John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And, and you know the way to where I'm going. Well, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, well, show us the father. It's enough for us. <laughs> you realize what Jesus was doing that night in the upper room? He was doing something that Southerners can't stand. He was saying goodbye. Now, it wasn't going to be a goodbye forever, but it was going to be a good goodbye to Seeing me this way, knowing me this way, that was about to change. And so Jesus, with extraordinary compassion, begins to tell his disciples goodbye. <laughs> and then Philip, did you hear it at the end? After Jesus is so clear, he says, well, just show us the Father, which is what Jesus had been doing all along. <laughs> Philip is like a, a a six-year-old who's trying to bargain with mom and dad to get 30 more minutes before going to bed. Well, can I just watch this show, this show, and I'll go to bed? Just show us the Father, and we'll be good. But you see, Jesus was lovingly helping his disciples build an altar. You see, in the South, we really don't like to say goodbye, do we? Because we come up with euphemisms. Like, y'all come back now, you hear? Um, I mean, whatever. Anything that we can say, just so we don't have to say those hard, cold words. Goodbye. But the fact is, things come to an end. Things change. And so the disciple of Jesus needs to know how to handle that. When I said a minute ago, Jesus was showing them, was actually building an altar with them. Obviously, we know the story. There was no altar built, no stones gathered, but he was building an altar. You realize as you read the Old Testament, you come across these moments in the life of the people of God when something amazing has happened. And what they do at the end of it is they build an altar. Now, altars were built in the Old Testament, two styles. One was a sacrificial altar, but the other was a memorial altar. Like after the Exodus, when Moses is confronted by the Amalekites. Now here were these brick makers, and now they have to fight a war right after coming through the Red Sea, and they win. And what the temptation for the people of God at that moment would be, after the victory over the Amalekites was, I don't know where we're supposed to go. Let's stay here. I mean, we, we, we just defeated the Amalekites, one of the strongest warring nations there is, and we beat them. It can't get much better than this. Let's stay here. But you know what God told Moses to do? He said, write a testimony of what just happened and then gather stones and build an altar. You realize what he was saying? He was saying, I want you to acknowledge that, yes, something good did happen. But that's over. You're on a journey. There's more to come. But your temptation is to want to be planted right here and to not continue the journey. 
to try to suck life out of something you can't get life out of anymore because it happened yesterday. It's over. Here's what you have to do. Tell the story. Remember the good of it. Remember the bad of it. It's something you can just do by yourself or you can do it with a community, a family or a friend. And then acknowledge, but that's over. Pile up stones as a place to return to say, yes, but I remember that. Thank God for it. And then keep moving. The tragedy so often is that when we do get to those places in life, when we do experience loss, when there is a change, we fail to recognize what's happened. And we try to still get life out of it. And that actually hinders us from fully embracing what's next. And so often what happens is we're at that moment where there's the pull and the tug of what's next. And then this pull, we still feel this identity we still have with what had happened. We get angry. Now you've got, you've got Janet coming up and I'm, I'm actually ashamed to, to do this because I know this is not good psychology at all. But I love 25 cent definitions because I can remember them. Anger is the emotional response of being denied what you want. <laughs> Whatever it is, it could be a parking place at the mall, it could be world peace. In fact, you would think you should get angrier about world peace not getting done than the parking place at the mall, but you know what really kind of gets us rallied up. <laughs> and as we, as we find ourselves refusing to acknowledge that something's come to an end, building an altar, telling the story of what it was like and acknowledging, but that's not there anymore. Thank you, God, for it. What a gift. And it's not just doing this with people who've died. We do it with seasons in our lives, with capacities we once had and valued. And we tell the truth. Another 25-cent definition of mine is prayer. Close your eyes and tell the truth. Close your eyes is optional. <laughs> but telling the truth is the heart of prayer, of knowing that we have the one place where we can dare to tell the whole truth. And so in building altars, at those places of change and tra transition and loss. We just tell the story. We remember, we thank God, we weep, and we say goodbye so that we can move on because the journey is not over. And what he has next is going to require our full attention. Follow me, he said, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Aging faithfully as a disciple begins with this call, but then is followed by a promise. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's that center phrase. I will make you. Do you hear the promise? Follow me. I'll make you. I'll make you what? Whatever I want to. It really doesn't matter because I will do it. I will make you. The kingdom of God is made by God-made people, not self-made people. Chuck Swindoll, a great Bible teacher, he said this, you realize the scariest things about, thing about Christianity is you can learn to do it. 
you can get a picture of what it is and in your own effort, go try to be it. But that will never work. To follow Christ, to be a part of his kingdom, well, that's made by God-made people, people who have come to a place where we recognize that we in and of ourselves are not enough. We're not good enough. We're not powerful enough. We're not smart enough. We're not rich enough. We're not clever enough. We're not in and of ourselves enough to accomplish the works of God, whatever they are. It's why Jesus began his most famous sermon with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who know their absolute bankruptcy before God. Nothing to contribute, nothing to merit his favor. He says, happy is the day when you figure that out. Because yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you when you see that about yourself. See our need of God so that we might fall before a merciful and gracious God. Again, that passage in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that nobody's going to boast. We're his workmanship created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Well, how, how does he make us? Whatever it is, he's going to make us. If I have identified with him, if I've responded to the call, and he then says, and I will make you, rather than us trying to make ourselves. Have, anybody, have any of you ever seen the movie Karate Kid? If you, if you haven't, just work with me. But for those who have, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about the old one, not the one they made a couple of years ago. It's a story about a kid, 1984 version. This kid moves from Jersey to California. His name's Daniel. He's played by Ralph Macchiati. And the Karate Kid gets to California and he begins to get bullied. But real close to where he lives, he finds this old man, Mr. Miyagi. And he knows that Mr. Miyagi knows karate. He's a master. And so the kid asks Miyagi, would you please teach me karate so that I can defend myself against the bullies? Miyagi says, sure, come to my house tomorrow. So the kid goes, gladly, he's ready to be able to learn how to fight. And what does Miyagi do after the kid says, okay, I'm here for my lesson? Well, he hands him a sopping wet sponge and a bucket and points to a row of antique cars he's got. And he says, I want you to wash my cars. The kid washes him, says, and when you wash, I want you to use these kinds of strokes. And then the kid comes back at the middle of the day, said, I washed your cars. And Miyagi says, now I want you to wax my cars. And he says, well, he said, when you don't, don't do it sloppily. Wax, you know that wax on, wax off. Don't don't wax on. No, wax on, wax off. That's how you do it. Five cars. 
He waxes that day, ends the day exhausted. He says, come back tomorrow. The kids say, okay, good. Maybe tomorrow I come back and you're going to teach me karate. We come back the next day and Miyagi has a paint bucket and a paintbrush. And he points to his porch and he says, now what I want you to do is paint my porch. And he says, well, I want you to slap it on. I want you to brush like this, strokes like this and strokes like this. So the kid spends the whole day painting. The next day he gets there. Now, sure, I've washed and waxed the cars. I've painted his. Now he has another bucket of paint, another paintbrush, points to the fence. Same idea. Hear the motions. Don't do it any way but this. Well, at the end of that day, he goes home wanting to quip, says, I'm going back tomorrow. I am going to say you have not been up, kept your bargain. And so he goes to Miyagi and he says, I cannot stand this. I'm not doing any more of this work. I'm not doing any more of this stuff for you anymore. You promised me that you would train me and teach me karate so I could defend myself. And you have not done any of it. And as soon as he says any of it, Miyagi attacks the kid with definite blows that would bruise him and even break bones. And as Miyagi attacks the kid, the kid blocks the blows. The kid is able to stop what's coming. You see, if Miyagi had said, okay, you want to learn karate? Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go over there and learn the right arm blocking technique. You just have to do that 10,000 times. Come back to me when you're done. (laughs) Well, you know. He would have never have done it. And neither would we. Did you realize that so much of having Christ formed in us, the fruit of the Spirit grown in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we don't have that in us by spiritual fairy dust. You know, you go to sleep at night, God, I really want to wake up more patient. And then, whoa, I'm now patient. This is amazing. How did that happen? No. We go through the, the detailed rigors of life. We go through wax on, wax off experiences, things that God has us do that we think, what does this have to do with me becoming more Christ-like? I mean, read your Bible, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I read my Bible. Every day, pray, come among the people of God. I mean, yeah, what has this got to do with it? Love my neighbor, love my enemy, bless those who persecute me. Day after day after day after day. And soon the character of Christ is formed in us. And he never stops. And we go from strength to strength. I know you might think, well, okay, but really still, what's that got to do with aging faithfully? Well, everything. God's promise to work in your life is not a promise for youth. His I will make you is I'll make you whatever I call you to be. Whatever I call you to do. Think about Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God gives a call on Abraham's life. He says, I want you to get up, get your family, and I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you. You ever thought about that call? Go to a place I'll show you. It's like, could you give me a zip code or something? (laughs) What do you, go to a place I will show you. 
but he does. Talk about change. Talk about loss. As he gets up and leaves a place where he's lived, where he's known, all the relational capital's gone. And as he packs up in caravans, a lot of his stuff is left behind. But he goes. Well, you know how old he was when that happened? He was 75. Sarah was 65. When God said, I will make you, make of you a great nation. And then in Genesis chapter 17, there's a rehearsing of all of that, where God says again, what he will do with Abraham and how he will make a great nation of him. And in fact, changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Do you realize how old he was then? He was 99 and Sarah was 89. This God making us is not merely something for our youth. I mean, think about it. There he is, Abraham and Sarah, 99, 89. Their landing gear was down. <laughs> they're, they're ready to land this life they have. And God now is saying, oh, no, no, no. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and it's going to start with a child. So let's get rid of these silly notions that God stops making things in us and of us when we get older. God has plans for them. Our default self-sufficiency mode will always fail us, even as we age, because we're surrounded by what can, we can no longer do. But if we focus on Jesus, then we'll know what he can do. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I will make you. Here's why that's important. Because when we do suffer loss, when we do face issues in aging, when we do face the challenges that come, and we look to our own resources, we will not have what it takes. It will overwhelm. It will be too much. But if we turn to him and remember his promise, I'll make you. I'll make you a person who ages faithfully. I can do it. I'll make you. We can stay engaged with God. As you'll hear from the other two, there are lots of ways to stay engaged with God. A call, a promise, and then let me finish quickly with a vision. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Draw us in the kingdom of God. God gives us a vision for something greater than anything we could have ever dared imagine. Now, for the disciples, it was going from Fishers, fishermen to fishers of men. In other words, their job, they understood, was get fish and put them in front of men. But Jesus was saying, I want you to get men and bring them to the presence of God. Get people, get men, women, boys and girls, and you bring them to God's presence. How about you? How about me? As we age, as followers of Christ, we can live as people who've made peace with the end of life long before it comes.
Paul in Philippians 1.21. I've already quoted it. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We can actually come to a place where we recognize, I know where this is going. And so I don't have to worry about that. We don't have to live with the haunting thoughts of what is next? Is this all there is? Is there more? We know the end. And we know where we're heading. To live is Christ. To die is gain. You see, God wants us to finish well. And he wants to give us everything we need in order to finish well. I heard an illustration from a, a pastor, a teaching pastor, a guy named Brian Loritz, from Stephen Ambrose's book, Nothing Like It in the World, The True Story of the Building of the Transatlantic Railroad. There was incredible excitement for the project all over the country, excitement of the different parts that would be done. This was now when the Central Pacific um, the west to east part of the line was about to begin, and someone had a wonderful idea of, of having a ceremony, a first spike ceremony to just celebrate the beginning of this thing. It had been done in other places, a first spike ceremony, and so they decided they were going to do that. It's kind of like the equivalent of a, of a ribbon-cutting ceremony. Huge project. Everybody's excited. It's a big deal, and they wanted to get started well. Sounds like a great idea, right? The problem is one of the heavy investors in the project was a man named Collis Huntington. He learned of it, and he wanted to put a halt to it, this ceremony. And so he fired off a telegram, and here's what the telegram said. If you want to jubilate over doing the first spike, go ahead and do it. I don't. Those mountains over there, they look too ugly. We may fail, and if we do, I want to have as few people know about it as we can. <laughs> I mean, you, anybody can drive the first spike, but there are many months of labor and unrest between the first and the last spike. You realize what Huntington was saying? Starting well, anybody can do that. Finishing well, that's the challenge. Lawrence also made this point. He said, you know, as I read my Bible, as I think about meeting my God one day, my Bible doesn't record God saying of you and me as we stand in his presence, well started. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully what he'll say to you and me is, well done, good and faithful. Howard Hendricks, professor, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he did a Bible study on finishing well. He, he actually studied the scriptures to see how many people finished well. And so he found that there were about 3,000 people mentioned in the scriptures, but there was only sufficient information on a hundred of them to determine how they started and how they finished, in particular, whether they finished well. And he found out of the hundred that only 30 finished well. Absent from the list, Moses. Moses, who at the end disobeyed God. When God, having told him, speak to the rock, in his frustration with the people, struck it. And so he didn't cross over to the promised land. Samson, an amazing public success and a private nightmare. 
all kinds of kings as you read the books of the kings. Even some of them who did good things, but often there's the phrase, but then again, he did not put away the high places. Starting well is easy. Finishing well is rare. Follow me, and I will make you disciples who age faithfully. You know, almost 20 years after their return from Babylon, the Babylonian exile, the people of God were extraordinarily discouraged. The temple rebuilding started well, but then it languished. Life was hard. The Persian taxation was heavy. There was no sight of the fulfillment of the earlier prophecies of a restoration of Jewish preeminence and a reformation of the people of God. It just wasn't happening. And Zechariah spoke of the veracity of God's promises, that even though what was seen brought only discouragement, God was still at work. So I'll close with this passage from Zechariah chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Do you see it? As I was saying my prayers and thinking about this, God reminded me of that passage. I've shared it with other congregations. But when I think of the number of people in this room that were wanting to come, and gather together on this topic. Do you see it? What God is doing in a culture that wants to deny it and avoid it and change it. There's a group of men and women who he's drawing together that say, no, no, no. It's part of our call to age well, to age faithfully. And we want to learn how to do it. We want to be a people who show another generation how to do it. Enough of this silliness of trying to make it not ever end. Enough of this silliness of saying once you reach a certain age, you've got nothing to offer. To be a people who lives so radically identified with Christ, who knows so firmly that he will make you whatever it is you need to be and gives you this vision is it possible that one day there will be people who, as they begin to think about aging, say to people who are members of this church, take me with you. I hear the Lord is with you. And I want to learn what you've learned to be and do. God wants it. Amen. Amen. To learn more about Holy Trinity Anglican Church and our 60-plus ministry, I invite you to visit the church's website at htcraleigh.org.